Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, at Broadway Curtain, and make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you kids, follow us on Instagram, ooh, at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Today's guest is the face of New York theater, an individual whose incredible artistry has been developed in front of countless and very fortunate audiences in the original works of such playwrights as, get this, Terrence McNally, Neil Simon, David Mamet, Mel Brooks, John Robin Bates, Simon Gray, as well as through collaborations with such directors as Susan Stroman, Jerry Zaks, Joe Mantello, Marianne Elliott, George C. Wolfe, and Jack O'Brien, to name just a few. Since 1982, Broadway audiences have seen his brilliance in such shows as Present Laughter, Merlin, the 1992 revival of Guys and Dolls, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, Love, Valor, Compassion, the 1996 revival of Funny Thing Happened Way Before Him, for which he won his first Tony Award, The Producers, for which he won his second Tony Award, The Frogs, Butley, November, The Nance, and Angels in America, for which he won his third Tony Award. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Mike Nichols, Tony Kushner, Mickey Rooney, George C. Scott, Cheetah Rivera, Stephen Sondheim, Laurie Metcalf, and so many more, here is the seventh precinct's most accomplished bail interviewer, Mr. Nathan Lane. Mr. Lane, how are you today? Oh, uh, that was a that was one of those James Lipton <laughs> deep, deep dive references of, of my life. Uh, the minutia, the minutia. You got to, you have to. The bail interviewer, yeah. Well, okay. How, well, thank you. Nice to see you both. And, nice to see you. How did you leave the wonderful job of bail interviewing to become an actor? Is really the big question for today. Well, it's uh, a, a a longer story. I would hope <laughs> than you would really want to hear. Uh, I I was going to go to college. I was supposed to go to St. Joseph's College in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. I I had a drama scholarship there. I had auditioned for them and got a drama scholarship, but. I owed them more money. I had a government loan and a student loan. And then I, I got there and they, they said I, I, I still owed them more money. And I, this troubled me greatly. Uh, I was ahead of my time being worried about student loans. Yes. <laughs> so I said this to my brother, my oldest brother, Dan, who came with me uh, to Philadelphia. And, I, and we went for a walk. And he, and he finally said, well, look, if you're so concerned, you, you could just wait and take uh, a year off and and work and earn the money and then and then go to college and rather quickly i said okay that's what i'll do yeah and so we went back and got the bags out of the room i I guess i was the mystery student (laughs) at st joseph's college in philadelphia whose bags came and then disappeared (laughs) and then somehow through some 
family connection, perhaps. I honestly don't recall. I got a job at the seventh precinct in Jersey City as a bail interviewer, which meant that I had to fill out the paperwork for the court clerks to determine whether that person would uh, be released, could could be released on their own recognizance. And so people who are arrested were brought in and and they met me, and then I would ask them mundane <laughs> questions like, as they were <laughs> covered in blood or something. Stop. And Stop. I would say, do you own any real estate? <laughs> um, so... I did this only for a matter of three weeks or so. Great. And then it, uh, I had worked for a little theater company, a, a non-equity theater company in um, in uh, uh, East Orange, yeah, in, uh, New Jersey. They had a little theater in residence at um, Uppsala College in East <laughs> Orange, New Jersey. These two gentlemen, two uh, they were they were partners, although they didn't really discuss the fact. <laughs> They were, of course, they, they lived together, but they they were together, <laughs> and <laughs> it was another time. <laughs> and so, but they were sweet, you know. And um, uh, they, I had worked for them in, in a season of summer stock things, of musicals, or, and so forth. And then they had put together uh, because the there was this was uh, I grad I graduated high school in seventy four. So um, the bicentennial was coming up in 1976. So they had put together a show sort of celebrating the history of New Jersey oh. in honor of the bicentennial that was called Jers, <laughs> J-E-R-Z. Great. You know, Great. A, a sort of, uh, yeah, uh, uh, for those, you know, it's sort of a familiar, yes. uh, <laughs> familiar <laughs> phrase for you know, people who were from New Jersey, jerseys, and we wore little gold sweatshirts that said jerseys across the front. It was four performers and uh, two women, two men, and, and four stools. And it was a musical review about the history of New Jersey mm-hmm. that toured schools and, and oh, wow. wherever they would take us. Yeah. And so they put this together, and, and it was sort of tied into the bicentennial. So people, <laughs> as sort of a motivation for people to hire us it was leading towards the bicentennial and uh um, so uh i did that for uh, quite a while i did some other shows for them as well but that sort of um when i decided not to go to college and no longer and not to be a bail interviewer i i did this little musical review that helped pay bills Do, do you remember any songs from it uh, there was a big uh, number called "The Statue of Liberty Lives in Jersey City." <laughs> <laughs> All right, kids, that should be your next audition song. Not Get a nice forget. people uh, forget. Um, there, uh, the Statue of Liberty lives in Jersey City. Statue of Liberty lives in Jersey City. It was a very snappy little tune. <laughs> we love an up tempo. <laughs> Just thinking about it brings up phlegm. <laughs> uh, just thinking about singing that mm. for, for unruly children at, at an ungodly hour. But so that, I, yeah, so that's, um, uh, yeah. That, so that's, that's my, my uh, beginnings in terms right. of. Uh, other than you know being in school plays, that was right. Great. So we're going to jump back even earlier. When was the first time you were ever on stage? 
okay, I believe it was, yeah, it was a, a, a school play. Um, or maybe it was, yeah, it was a school play. I, we did a, uh, there was a production of Around the World in 80 Days. Very ambitious for a <laughs> yeah, gonna, yeah. elementary school production. It the rights have, to. Yeah. And I played the French manservant to the, the Mr. Fogg, the leading character, uh, Passepartout. <laughs> and I, uh, yes, and I had a, there was a scene where Indians were attacking a train that we were on. And I, I, I had a little tiny suitcase and I hid behind it oh. ineffectually and it, it got a big laugh. And so that was sort of like blood to a vampire. Yeah. And so, you know, so stuff like that, there was school, I was in a spelling bee and I remember I got a word right and I, I made a sort of Jackie Gleason-esque exit <laughs> that got mentioned in the local paper. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, if there was a school assembly or something and they, you know, I, I would do thing, I would perform. But that, that was the first play I, I was in. And was your family supportive of you pursuing the arts like this? Well, you know, I, uh, my family, which I've talked about. Of course many times in the past, uh, uh, was, uh, highly dysfunctional and, you know, my mother and father had, had problems and, and my father was an alcoholic and my mother was eventually diagnosed being bipolar. So, um, uh, yes, they were. I mean, my brother, Dan, is the one who really encouraged me uh, and, and, and and took me to the theater. He and literally got me involved in a in a play at his college. His some friends were doing a play, a Frank Gilroy play called Who yes. Saved the Plowboy, uh, in which they needed a kid. And I was, I don't know, nine, 10, something like that. And I, so I appeared in that. Maybe that was my first play. Okay. I, I don't know. It's all a blur. Yeah, it's all yeah. a blur. But, um, so he encouraged this. I mean, he and I had an uncle who was a Jesuit priest, uh, an uncle Joe, who both of them encouraged me to read from a very early age. So I was reading a lot. Okay. Voracious reader, and and then that in, in uh, uh, included plays, and so and then I I had joined a play of the month club. I've talked about this a lot as well, called the Fireside Theater, and they would send me plays, you know, and so that uh, got got me interested as well. And my brother, with my brother's encouragement, and then of course going going to the theater. So that that sort of is what. I think instilled that interest in me. He also took you to your first Broadway show. Is that right? Yes. He took me to see, uh, uh, I believe the first one was uh, black comedy, white lies. Uh, the um, uh, uh, Anthony Schaefer was it? An it was Anthony Schaefer, right? Who wrote I, the, not, I Peter, think... not Peter, who wrote Amadeus. And, no, 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 no. I think it was, it might be Tom Stoppard. <clears throat> No, 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 no. It's Anthony Schaefer. Anthony Schaefer. Um, it was a double bill. It was a short one-act play called uh, uh, White Lies, uh, followed by Black Comedy, which had been a big success in London. And uh, the cast was uh, Michael Crawford and Geraldine Page. And, oh, my God. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no, that was the first thing I saw on stage. And did it just knock you out? Did you go, that's what I want to do? 
well, I, I, as I recall, I was, it was just so exciting. And then, you know, the gimmick of the play is that it, it starts in darkness and people are talking and then the lights come on. And then that means they've been plunged into darkness and they have to find their way around. So it took me a while between the British accents and, and the situation. It took me, I was just a kid. It took me a while to figure out what was happening, but certainly the, the notion of the, the, the telling the story and the audience laughing and all of that was was uh, uh, you know very very exciting. Yeah. Did you ever entertain doing anything else besides performing? No, I mean the only uh, no. Uh, um, yeah. I, I, I don't want to make that joke. I have no other skills. No, no. But I, you know, I wish uh, you know maybe writing. I do write. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I, I I've been writing all my life, so I mm-hmm. might if if this hadn't worked out <laughs> or if they said you can't do this anymore uh i i guess i would i would go to that i would write mm-hmm. but um yeah it's uh, uh it's certainly it was not something i really thought i c- could be a profession and then right. and then uh by towards the end of high school i thought well maybe maybe i could uh i guess maybe having seen theater and, and feeling like uh, not only would I like to be a part of that, but maybe I maybe that's within me. I you know. Yeah. Were oh, you yeah. T- attending a lot of theater in your town? Were you going to Paper Mill a lot, or were you coming into New York a lot with your brother no. to see shows? I, I not in uh, not in New Jersey. Although I did see, I'll always remember this. I saw a production of a funny thing happened on the way to the Forum. Uh, I did. I saw it on the first revival on Broadway with Phil Silvers. Phil Silvers. Oh my yeah. God! Which was, you know, one of the great greatest yeah. afternoons of my life. Uh, I'll tell you about that. But there was a performance at the Paper Mill that Eddie Bracken. I don't know if you remember Eddie Bracken. Of course, of course. From a lot of Preston Sturgis movies. Yes. Uh, sweet, adorable Eddie Bracken played Sudless. <laughs> this was like. I forget what year this was, but I went to a, it was a rainy matinee. It was sparse, you know, and it was a quiet audience. And he came out and he was very funny and he was so charming, you know, and um, uh, he, he had a little mustache. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a little silver mustache. I was like, that's weird and ancient. <laughs> For a slave to have a stylish little mustache. <laughs> You know, and he, it's a choice. So he came out and I started laughing a lot. And then he realized that there's one person in this crowd who thinks this is the greatest thing ever. And he played the entire show to me. He would, anything that happened, and he, he Sudalist talks to the audience a lot, obviously. So he just directed to me. He would turn to me and say, you believe, you believe this? <laughs> and whatever it was. And it was so charming. And it was a, it was a really good cast. Um, and so I'll always remember that, that he just, he just, you know, it's so hard when you can't get that kind of rhythm going with an audience and that he just decided, this is the guy, this is my guy. I'm doing it for him. Yeah. And then the, the Phil Silvers one, I was in high school at the time and they, it it won the best, uh, the Tony for best revival and Phil Silvers one, Larry Blyden one for playing Hysterium. And they were not selling tickets. And so as a publicity stunt, they held a free 4th of July matinee. Oh. And I stood online in the in blazing heat. And I was literally the last person let into the theater. And then they closed, locked the doors. 
And I stood in the back and I watched and people went nuts because they got in for free. And Phil Silvers was that's, you know, that's who they wrote it for originally. That's who they wanted. And he turned it down because he felt he'd been playing that his whole life. He (laughs) didn't want to do it again. You know, and then they got Milton, Milton Burrow. They announced Milton Burrow, and then that didn't happen, fortunately. And then they, <laughs> and then zero. They asked zero uh-huh. to do it. But um, I'll always Phil Silvers. I, I, quite honestly, with all all due respect to zero, uh, it was that was magical. That mm-hmm. and that's you know he just was. It was just what you wanted in that part. He's the greatest that I've ever seen do play the part, really. Oh, that's incredible. Who were some of your comedy giants? Oh, well, uh, certainly Jackie Gleason. Uh, Jackie Gleason and Art Carney, you know, on the honeymooners. But Gleason, just um, in particular, um, I was quite uh, taken with. Um, um, You know, my whole family loved him and, and the honeymooners, but... It was just something about him. I guess the fact that I knew that he was Irish uh, 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 and Irish Catholic. I knew he had, uh, you know, came from poverty and became uh, this huge television star. <clears throat> and uh, but there was the, the the tremendous pathos that he had, and and the uh, that he was not only outrageously um, funny and, and 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 could do very broad comedy but uh, but also just break your heart in an instant right. and there was such tremendous sadness in his eyes that i always remembered so i was mm-hmm. that was sort of he was my that was the person was the guy. I, I was very drawn to him and i and then also just old uh, you know silent comedians uh, uh, laurel and hardy i loved and abbott and costello but um yeah uh mm-hmm. um you know Without- yeah no, I was going to say those those were the ones that you kept returning to over and over again. Yeah, yeah, Laurel and Hardy, I just loved so much, um, and uh, you know Sid Caesar. My oh God. yeah, you know he yeah. was you know such a giant and and could do anything. Um, so yeah, it, it, I, you you have a love for you know Eugene O'Neill and like sort of the sort of heavier plays, and then you also have this. An affinity for com- comedy as well. When you were younger, did you know you wanted to do one or the other, or did you say, "No, I want to do the more serious stuff"? Even though I love the funny stuff as well, because so much of what you did was the heavy stuff, like in high school and stuff. It wasn't like musicals. It was. Yeah, I did do a musical at at a girls' academy, Saint Al's, Saint Dominic's Academy. They did No No Nanette. That was, I think, my first musical, and I oh. played the the the. Jimmy character, the Jack Gilbert part. Um, but um, no, I think, uh, you know, it was about being funny mm. and being entertaining. Um, it, it, you know, it's, I mean, certainly over the years, I mean, that's what I became known for was the comedy. Well, sure, and, 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 to be and known I, for it. But. And then I happened to be in a, a few <clears throat> musicals that were very successful and so that's that was sure. how people knew me um yeah. and then but and certainly at the same time i was starting to do i was working with terence mcnally and john robin bates and so there was it was a mixture of things uh, um and and then you know it's a long story but then 
<laughs> you know, I, uh, um, particularly in the last decade or more, I, I made a concerted effort to try yeah. and balance things and to do and to take on more challenges for myself and, and then uh, wondering if I could sort of change people's perception yeah. a little bit. Has that and, been successful, what do you think? You know, it has, and I I don't say that lightly. No, you had <laughs> no. a fight. You had a fight no. for it. I feel like I mean, you yeah. had a really. Oh, you do, and you have to fight through people's um, skepticism and like, why won't you just stay in your box? In their idea, yeah. I I feel like by the time we got to um, say Angels in America, the fact that they asked me to do it was a sign that I had I had been able to turn. Yeah. Found yeah. a bit, and and then John Logan writing this part for me in this um, uh, now defunct series, Penny Dreadful, City of Angels. But it was, you know, a part to, to do a part like that. It's it took that it it took some changing of minds. At this stage, no one just hands it to you, <clears throat> except in the theater. I have a little bit of clout to to ask someone say, would you? want to do this play or that play like with Bob Falls at, and the Goodman theater to do, um, the Iceman Comet. That was, yeah. that was the, you know, the first attempt to try to change things. And then with, uh, after that, which was sort of a life changing experience, um, some other things came along, you know, the good wife or the people versus OJ on television and, yeah. Just things that uh, the Nance on stage, all of these things sort of started to shift things a bit. And and uh, it, was, it was getting harder and harder to say, oh, he's just a baggy pants clown. Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So, uh, uh, yes, I do feel that has been uh, um, uh, successful, that I've been able to do that. Now, of course, it could turn around in a second. Yeah. <laughs> That's so Such is yeah. life. Uh, to you, what is the ideal actor-director collaboration? What do you look for out of a director? Oh well, uh, you know, um, it, you know, it, obviously, it depends so much on what the what the piece is. Like, well, for example, I, I, uh, like George C. Wolf, who who I uh, I, I worked with him. Uh, and the last thing I did on Broadway was Taylor Max. Uh, Gary, a sequel to Titus Andronicus, which was, you know, an extremely risky piece to do uh, on Broadway, uh, which is, you know, turned into the Mall of America. To <laughs> be doing this very downtown show uptown and uh, was dangerous. It was dangerous. And, you know, and Scott Rudin, you know, said, uh, to, you know, I, I want you to play this part. And I, I said, well, it's fascinating, but wouldn't you like to go somewhere and quietly work on this and figure it out? Just to throw this on stage at, at the Booth Theater is, you know, it's almost suicidal. Um, mm. And, uh, uh, you know, uh, but, you know, one of the things that made it, I felt, um, possible was uh, George C. Wolf, who's, you know, as brilliant as they get. And also... Yeah. Somebody who you really want to be in the room with, who's he's his energy and his, uh, his lightning quick mind, and he's so entertaining, wildly mm -hmm. entertaining and funny, and 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 he's uh, inspiring, and yet 
you know, letting you try to find things and, and, you know, collaborating. He's a great collaborator. And if you're lost, he will help, you know, he's there for you when you need him. And, um, I, I, you know, I, I, I never could have gotten through that without, uh, George, um, Seawolf. Um, it depends, you know, as I said, it depends on the piece, you know, certain, uh, you know, you're, you know, it, it, and, and what, what is, what is needed. I mean, Gary was, you know, we were creating this on the fly and it was, Taylor was figuring out the play as well. And then you don't really figure things out until you're in front of an audience yeah. anyway. Yeah. So, you know, we had a workshop, but then you're in front of people and you find out very quickly what works and what doesn't. And, uh, and I knew George, well, I, I wanted George to do it because I knew he would, as he, as he did with Angels in America, he would be able to shape this into uh, a story. Um, as well as, you know, obviously it was commenting on what's happening now um, in a unique and, and, and hilarious and uh, very gay way. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's a great, uh, Taylor is a great original uh, queer voice and, and certainly deserves to be on Broadway. Uh, so, and I'll, oh, I'll be, I'm very happy I did it, but it was, it was a, tr a trial by fire. You know, first Andrea Martin, um, the great Andrea Martin, uh, slipped in the tub, broke four ribs. Oh my God. You know, Christine Nielsen, who was in one part, moved into her part and Julie White came in. They did an extraordinary job. Of, uh, we had literally, you know, had about a week or less of rehearsal, and then we went on in the first Oof. preview. And they, they just saved the show. Those two brilliant women. And so um, you want, you know, the director is your, uh, you know, he's a therapist. He's your, he's your best <laughs> friend. He's your, you know, he's your parent. He's and and then he's the guy who you know it, uh, gives you a certain amount of freedom, but then is able to say just the one thing that will maybe make something click for you. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as an actor, do you like table work or do you like to just get up on your feet and start going? It, it depends what it is you're, you're doing. You know, if you're doing the front page, uh, I don't think you need to do a lot of table work. You just have to, you know, it's good to sit down and just read it and hear the music of the play. But that's a play that only comes to life when when you you start to get on your feet and you start to orchestrate all of those voices and, and uh, so um, it yeah but if it's it depends a new, if, if it's a new play then 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 yes then it certainly is helpful to have discussions about things and and uh, figuring out uh, you know and and when you're in a rehearsal situation if something is not working for you are you vocal about it or is it let them figure it out and then I'll, I'll add my two cents if I'm asked. I, I, you know, you always, I always try to do what it is the, the author wants the author and the, you know, the, hopefully they're collaborating and to do what it is they're, they're looking for. And then and certainly I will express my opinion. And if something, you know, I think isn't working, uh, I, I'll, I'll say that. And then, you know, but, um, but uh, that's the goal is to, you know, to um, fulfill 
their their vision and what they want and need and from you and then and and yeah i'm always happy to express my two cents but uh <laughs> sometimes sometimes that that is you know part of it and sometimes it's it's not and how do you begin approaching a role what is is there a, a process that you go through or is it different depending on each of the roles that you get it, it is different depending on the roles um you know, if you're playing somebody like Roy Cohn, there's a certain amount of research and and uh, um, there's some material on him. There's really only one uh, biography, Citizen Cohn, <coughs> which was very helpful to me. And then he wrote an autobiography, which was it's pretty hilarious, yeah. but but worth it was worth reading. But in, in that case, you know, you're dealing with a masterpiece, and so it's Tony has done a lot of that work for you. He, it's all there in, in the play. And, mm. and uh, so it's about honoring that and living up to that. But, um, you know, with, uh, well, with something like, uh, gee, you know, I don't, the front page again, there's a certain style to it. You know, they, it, if you just read it on a page, it seems very old fashioned and you think, oh boy, this is yeah. tough going. And, you know, those were the days of free act plays and people had the time. Yeah. They wanted they wanted to, for the whole setup, you know, that you set it up. Complications ensue in the second act and then it's all resolved very wonderfully and satisfyingly in the third act. Mm. <clears throat> but uh, there's, a, you know, a certain style that it demands. And, you know, it's interesting because... Um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of young actors uh, don't understand that, you know, and they think being naturalistic is the only way. And then, and then it just brings things to a grinding halt, as opposed to if you really are playing the music and at the tempo and 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 um, uh, stakes that are high, suddenly it seems very real and naturalistic, mm. as opposed to, uh, you know, I don't know, I, you know, I my. You know, if you're worrying about um, your childhood, yes. character's childhood <laughs> might not help in that situation. Totally. Yes. As opposed to, you know, the Iceman cometh, where you think about a lot of that, about what with the back, you know, an elaborate backstory for right. for Hickey and and Evelyn, and and certain things that when you get to them, you know, the fact that he gave her syphilis, you know, what that what that was like in 1912. If you research that and what what she went through, what he put her through, and mm -hmm. she still forgave him, it's the most uh, awful, maybe one of the most awful moments in that long uh, um, speech that he has about her, and and how awful and 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 also it, it is the enraging part of that yeah. of the guilt that she it, it, by forgiving him she inflicts on him. Um, you know, there's, so there's that. So there's a lot, <laughs> so there's a big buildup to walking in and saying, hello gang. Right. Um, it's, yeah. it's, there's a lot. He's walked from, you know, his apartment, uh, to that little bar and, and the, in the, uh, you know, in the village. But, um, so yeah, it's, it, it is different with each character. And then, and then, you know, with Gary, for example, you're inventing, yeah. You know, there's a certain amount of invention that you have to, you know, the character, it's based on a tiny character in Titus Andronicus, um, the clown, and who has, has survived, you know, he's, they sent him off to be hanged, 
in the in the in the Shakespeare play, and then he has survived this and talked his way out of it. And so you and and the notion that he was a street clown and a performer informed a lot of things, like with with Anne Roth and uh, the great mm, Anne Roth, lover myself. We, you know, what would that look be? And I was saying to her, I really want to go for it with you know, like a, a big, I, I, there was a, a performer, um, this uh, dancer, mime, British guy, I can't think of his name now. And I saw him in a, in a production of Cinderella where he had this huge blue wig, curly wig, <clears throat> and the white face. And, and I wanted it to look like a street clown. And that by the time as the play goes on, you know, the makeup starts to wear off and the and the and the wig comes off at a certain point in, in anger and you start to see the human being mm. underneath, underneath. He sort of evolves through the play. And so, you know, there's that kind of invention and yeah. imagination and, and to to create his story. <clears throat> so, so you come in with the with an idea like that. So when you. Well, every, that's what you have to do. You have to come in with a lot of ideas. And, so, you know, that's the exciting part. Yeah. So for you, when you get when you get something like Angels in America, or you get something like, you know, the beginning stages of Gary, do you sit down and go, okay, and this scene, he wants this. This is, this is what I'm going for. Now I'm going to go in and I'm going to play. Or do you just go in and go, I've, I've memorized the lines. I'm an open book. Let's start to play around with each other and see what the chemistry in the room is. Um, at this, at my age, I, I, I have to know the lines in advance. Okay, great. I, I don't like to, you know, when I was young, I would uh, learn it as we rehearsed. Right. <clears throat> now I like to come in knowing the material and then, and I, I don't, I, I you, you know, the, the argument always was that it, you get into bad habits or, you know, you don't, uh, try things. You make choices. Yeah. Yeah. But it's not true. No, it actually makes it easier and freer. Uh, so, um, you know, you just, uh, I mean, you know, uh, angels in America, you know, it just doesn't get any better. Yeah. Than that. So you, you, in a way, you don't want to get in the way of it, but it, as an example, um, when I read this biography, you know, there were, there were medical reports about his behavior in the hospital. At the, he was at the National Institutes of Health. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the medical reports were in this um, uh, second or first chapter in the book about the last two years of his life. And it talked about that he had a tremor that would start in one hand and went to the other and into his shoulder. <clears throat> and how it, uh, uh, thrush was affecting his voice. And I thought, gee, you know, that's interesting mm. because uh, to watch as, you know, vile a creature as he is, but to watch this disintegration of this very brilliant, vital <laughs> person. So um, the tremor to me was interesting because they said, uh, Roy, when uh, the tremor would start, he would hold his hand and stop it shaking because he didn't want people to see him that vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. weakness. Just so he would literally hold his hand and stop it from shaking. Uh, and and then in the, there was a the scene, big scene with um, Joe Pitt, Joe. you know, that very father son scene. He. Um, I wanted there to be a, a, a real shift to vocally, he's getting weaker. 
and and the sh- and he's not bothering to hide the shake anymore. <laughs> and uh, uh, it did a really interesting thing to well, it did an interesting thing to the audience, and it does. And also, then there there are these tr- huge body tremors uh, that happened. So all of that, um, it's unnerving because, you know, they want to hate you. (laughs) But um, I remember Tony was uh, actually, uh, Tony Kushner was kind of shocked when he heard my voice when I I was doing this very weak, you know, um, and then he and then he loved it. (laughs) But he was like, what? What are you doing? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What is that? I don't know. I said I'm trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. Playing. You're playing. Yeah. Playing. Yeah. Yeah. But um, you know, so that you see this disintegration, progression, and, yeah. uh, the the progression of the disease. Have you ever wanted to direct at all? Have you, has that ever been a desire for you? Oh sure. I want to tell everybody what to do. Uh, <laughs> I'm yeah, I feel like you'd be very good at it. That's, how, that's how Jerry Zachs got started. He was right. in, a, yes. he was in, he was in right. a, a replacement in Greece, and that's just right. started telling people what they should do. <laughs> and the first thing he tells you on a Jerry Zachs production is, "Don't tell anybody what to do. That's how you got a career." Um, anyway, I'm all for. I'll listen to anybody. I'm all for a good idea. If if you got to direct something tomorrow, what would you do? What would you want to do? I know you know this has come up. So many people have asked me. Uh, momentarily, when James Corden was maybe going to do a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, uh-huh. uh, or so, you know, I yeah. think then there was a, they there was a yeah they they had asked me about that, mm. but then it, and then I think maybe they were going to get somebody else alex timbers anyway i didn't uh you know and then he then he got a talk show so it didn't happen so there we go so i was i was asked about that and uh um but yes people have certainly suggested it Uh, amazing and i i i i should it would be another that would be another mountain to climb and i should exactly exactly I was going to ask you if I can about somebody that you know acted and directed at the same time, and that's George C. Scott. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you've how how did uh, Present Laughter come about for you? Uh, I had um, I I had I was um, w- I had been a part of a, a comedy team, and this this is in like the late seventies, 1980. We went out to L.A. We uh, opened for some rock acts and did the Merv Griffin show and yeah <laughs> there, and there are some and, and performed and then um we so we were both two actors struggling actors who put together an act and um and and we went to LA and uh and then nothing much happened and um <laughs> I came back to New York after we've been out in LA for about a year and a half I I had auditioned for that sitcom with mickey rooney and dana carvey and they i got the job and then went back to new york and filmed it and we did 13 episodes and you know it wasn't you know i knew it wasn't very good but it was an interesting experience (laughs) to work with dana and mickey rooney and uh, um and, and then and then so we did 13 episodes and it was over and then um i i uh i was with william morris at the time and i said to them 
you know, what I really want to do is theater. <laughs> and, you know, they said, well, you know, you just finished a TV series. Why do you want to do theater? And uh, this was the head of the theater department who said that. <laughs> and I said, well, that's really what I, I really think that's what I do best. Mm. Um, and uh, he said, ah, forget it. Uh, you, you should, you know, you want to do more TV. And then I wound up leaving uh, William Morris, and I went with an agent uh, named Jeff Hunter. Yeah. And uh, he, the first thing he sent me out on was the revival of Noel Coward's Present Laughter that was being done at Circle in the Square Theater, uh, directed by and starring George C. Scott. Uh, I think originally Frank Langella was supposed to do it, but he fell out and, and they, it, it came up in a conversation with George and he had played it in summer stock and, and he said, I'll do it. And, uh, and he usually, he directed most of the things he, I think all of the things that he did at circle in the square, um, they had a long history. So, um, and that was, and I went in, it was the first audition I went on. Um, and, uh, in in my in the act I had with a partner, the stand-up comedy act, we, you know, we did sketches, and one of the sketches was, what happened to Christopher Robin after he grew up? <laughs> what where is he now at age thirty-five, still living at home, you know, and it, with the teddy bear, and he wants, you know, his father wants him to get a job. Right, <laughs> he's, he's rather re- repelled by that idea, so. Um, <laughs> um, oh, a job! I just remember a job. That sounds icky. <laughs> aren't, aren't jobs for grown-up people? Christopher, it's time for you to grow up. No, I shall never grow up. Peter Pan didn't. Pinocchio didn't. Jerry Lewis didn't. And neither shall I. <laughs> So that was sort of the basis for my character yeah. in uh, Present Laughter. Roland, I played Roland Maul, this would-be right. playwright, law student, who's obsessed with the, the, the leading character, Gary Essentine, <clears throat> this aging matinee idol. And um, uh, it was just, you know, um, look, it was a great, great experience. And George was... Um, uh, a, a famously troubled yes. soul, yeah, yeah. Um, a, a what he referred to as a functioning alcoholic, but um, uh, was very kind to me, very paternal mm-hmm. and kind to me and supportive. When you were making the rounds, did you have a go-to audition song? Was there a song that you... Those were the good old days from Damn Yankees. Oh, ha- great. Have you ever played Applegate? No, I've been asked now a, a couple of times. What what were some of the other things that you were doing before you started going on Broadway? Was dinner theater, regional theater? Were you traveling? I did, you know, I worked for this little theater that was called, that I told you about it, yeah. uh, Uppsala College, the uh, Half Penny Playhouse, it was called. So I did a lot of, <coughs> they had it, they worked out of a dinner theater <laughs> in New Jersey. And I did, uh, you know, I did Forum. I played Pseudolus in Forum. I did Play It Again, Sam. I played the Woody oh. part. Uh, I did uh, Anything Goes. I, I played Moonface. You know, I did stuff mm-hmm. like that for them. I did a little bit of um, Summer Stock, and I uh, I did a season of eight musicals in eight weeks. Of course, classic. You know, oh, I did, um, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> I did everything. 
there. This is Shirley Booth. Oh, I used to be a Broadway baby. <laughs> now I'm more of a middle age. But whatever age you are, we can help keep Broadway behind the curtain on the air. Just head over to Patreon.com. Oh, sure, get a pencil. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. You got that? Oh, just search behind the curtain. Broadway's living legends. Set a monthly donation. Oh, even a dollar helps. Oh, sure. Mr. B gives. In the 80s, you were doing so, you were doing mostly legit, I mean, legit straight work. You weren't doing musicals. How did you first meet Terrence McNally? I was doing a play at Manhattan Theater Club that wasn't going so well. <clears throat> uh, and I remember we there was a meeting in the theater and uh, Lynn Meadow, the, you know, who runs the place, was saying, um, trying to figure out what was going wrong. And she said, I think the lights are too bright. She said to the director, and I said, yeah. I said, maybe that's the problem. They can see the play. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then they, they called for a break. So I went outside and I was sitting on the steps at the, this is at city center, you know, uh -huh. um, and I, uh, I was sitting on the steps and Terrence McNally had a play next door, Frankie and Johnny in the Claire de Lune, mm -hmm. he, uh, which was going very well. And he came out and he saw me and he said, hi, I'm Terrence McNally. And he said, I, I, um, I saw you in present laughter. I think you're a wonderful actor. And, and, uh, he said, I know the show's, got a few problems, but I hope we get to work. Uh, don't worry about it. And I hope we get to work together someday. And then about a year or so uh, later, I, I can remember the Lisbon Trombiata. It was done off, off Broadway. And I read a review of it in the Times. I remember reading it and thinking, well, that sounds like an interesting piece. Mm. And then the Manhattan Theater Club was going to do it. Um, they had done It's Only a Play, and that was very successful. And um, they uh, were doing uh, Lisbon and they were looking for an older actor to play the, the role of Mendy and uh, they were having difficulty for some reason and um, Joey, John Tellinger, Joey Tellinger mm -hmm. uh, um, I had I'd known him from, I had done the Common Pursuit, a Simon Gray play at the Long Wharf so he, he, he was sort of the literary, I think he was the literary guy there and he he um, uh, remembered me and liked me. And then he had used me in John Robin Bates's first play in New York, the film society. Mm -hmm. And he, John Tellinger was really, really the, the first person who said to me, you know, you're really an actor. You're more than just funny. Other than Simon Gray, mm -hmm. who, had, who once said to me, in a, <laughs> when we were getting drunk in a bar in New Haven said, you know, I, you have a choice, Nathan. You can either be a great actor or a great comedian. And I think you should be a great actor. <laughs> um, so, uh, but Joey Tellinger was the one who said to me, you, 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 you're more than just funny. And he gave me this opportunity with the Film Society, which was a very demanding role. And, and uh, you know, it was a play I read and I thought, or oh, this must be written by some 50-year-old college professor. And Rob, Robbie Bates, who was, I think he was 23 at the time. <laughs> I met him and I was like, wow. Yeah. Um, and he said, I'd like very much, I, I, I read for it in LA. I was in LA at the time 
doing the national tour of Broadway Bound, and I and I auditioned. I read for him, and he said, "I'd very much like you to do my play." And I said, "Shouldn't we ask your parents first? <laughs> <laughs> so, so Joey really, but that was a big turning point. And then Joey was the one who said, "Why don't, why don't we bring in Nathan for this role?" <clears throat> and everybody said, "Oh, he's too young," but uh, why not? And then I went in and and read it, and uh, and uh, they offered me the part that night. <laughs> I mean, it wow. was it was one of those parts. I think I don't know why they had trouble casting it. It was obvious on the page this was a tremendous role. Not only uh, you know, it's one of the that first act of Lisbon is one of the funniest things Terrence ever wrote, but it's also just heartbreaking. The sadness of, and the loneliness of this guy and his obsession with uh, Collis and all of that is, it's incredibly um, moving as well. So, you know, and I just, um, that, so that was the beginning. And then, you know, Terrence, he had said to me, um, while sort of maybe it was after that, he said, you know, uh, he had lost um, Jimmy Coco, who was a big part of his life. And, uh, and Bobby Drivers, who was a, an actor and and he he had been Terrence's partner and then uh and then he became a director and he had died of AIDS he had lost both of them and uh he said I feel like you were sent to replace them and mm. uh and that I, I he said I want to you know write parts for you because I like knowing who I'm writing for and uh <clears throat> which was incredibly uh moving and and uh and uh gratifying to a young yeah. actor for uh, someone of that stature saying something like that and then fulfilling it by writing right. um, and what is it about his work that um you think audiences respond to or more specifically you respond to that you keep coming back to articulate i just think it's his humanity and his i mean it's a it's a i, I wrote a, this tribute to him in uh, time magazine and you know it's that combination of this this biting wit and and wearing your heart on your sleeve and it's a magic trick that he perfected um and there's just so much you know i love language and he you know gives you a lot of language his characters like to talk um and uh i don't know it was just one of those magical Ma things we you know i just i just understood what he was saying he was what where the the characters were coming from his sense of humor. I immediately understood his sense of humor. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, it's, you know, it's like Tony Kushner, you know, it's just a gift. It's a real gift to be given. Oh, absolutely. Like you know, it's, a, you know, yeah. So, so let's imagine that a student has never read a Terrence McNally play. They, they're going into drama school for the first time. What play of his would you pass off to them and go this one, this is what he is. <laughs> Well, that it's hard. The one that maybe people don't know as well is a, a perfect Ganesh. Which I is a, love that. Yeah, a really beautiful piece uh, that he that Zoe Caldwell and Franny Sternhagen did together. Just beautiful. Um, brilliant, brilliant man and a brilliant artist. Um, so let's now move into your your musical theater career, if we can. Um, how does Guys and Dolls come about? Filling the shoes of the great Sam Levine. <laughs> <laughs> I had done Guys and Dolls in a, in, a, in a community theater when I was a kid. I played nicely, nicely. 
<clears throat> and then in my non-equity career, I had played Nathan Detroit. I was about 20, 21 at a non-equity dinner theater in Cedar Grove, New Jersey, the Meadowbrook Dinner Theater, which was actually the first dinner theater in America. Oh. So I had played Nathan Detroit. And then uh, I had auditioned for Jerry Zaks and then never really, uh, it never got anything. And then after the Lisbon Traviata, uh, I, uh, you know, people sort of let me in the club. And, <laughs> and he uh, asked me to do the workshop of Assassins, which was sort of the the, the um, first time I, I worked with him. And then when they were they were casting uh, uh, Guys and Dolls, of course, I was like, oh, my God, you know, I would love to be a part of that. And, and uh, I had auditioned for it. And they were trying to, you know, match couples and trying to figure out age and what who went with best with whom and anyway um yeah and faith and i you know jerry says don't you know give each other notes or don't talk don't talk to each other um uh and uh but we sort of everybody was working on the big numbers and she and i sort of went off by ourselves and staged uh, uh sue me you know for we tried to figure out because okay. you know it was such a um you know, some people can treat it as a throwaway number, but we saw it as this little three-act play, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, and there was some, you know, physical comedy. There was some, you know, and then at the very end, it's very real and moving. He loves her. Do you remember the first time you met her? Faith? Yeah. Uh, well, you know, we had done this not-so-great not revival of Terrence's play Bad Habits at Manhattan Theater Club. And, oh. it, and to be honest, it was not a great experience. And I can't say, I, I think she has said this, so I'll say it. She and I didn't exactly hit it off. Um, it was, there, was no, it, there was no animosity. It just right. was not, yeah. you, you wouldn't think that we would go on to become this <laughs> great team, which we did. But when we were going to, when we were cast in the parts, I sent her a huge bouquet of roses and said oh. some, something to her. And, um, and so, she, you know, we immediately bonded on that. And, and, you know, we were just in sync about the whole thing. And uh, it was, uh, no, that again, one of those times like with Matthew Broderick or, where there's just the, the thing you can't really predict is that kind of chemistry. That magic, yeah. And uh, I, I certainly felt that with her. She was, um, you know, it was the thing that really made her a star. You know, great people, you know, it was a, a great Peter and and uh, yeah. everybody, you know, came through in the end. And then it was, you know, that was like, it was a lot of drama. And then... Right. Uh, the the opening night, you know, the John Barlow, one of the press people, came up and had the front the front page of the New York Times was a picture of me and Faith, and it said Miss Adelaide and Nathan Detroit return to New York, and that was the first time mm -hmm. in the history of the New York Times they had put a, a theater um, piece on the front page. Wow, so it That's was exciting. Like, and then Frank Rich wrote, you know, this love letter. So yes. You know, it was a very happy ending. Big and hit. Yeah. then to go from that with Jerry to laughter on the 23rd floor, and then you add a Neil Simon to that, this person you had idolized growing up. What was yeah. it like? What was it like the first time meeting him? I had done the national tour of Broadway bound. Yeah. And, and, and yet I was cast and sent out on the road, but I didn't meet him until Los Angeles. He had, he had seen me audition. <laughs> 
I didn't meet him until later. Um, it was, uh, 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 that was, uh, that's the whole other story of, I was, I was broke and I needed to make money and I, my agent didn't want me to do a national tour, but I needed to make money. So I auditioned and got the job and went on the road for a year. And, um, in LA at the opening at the Amundsen, there was a knock at the door and I opened the door and Neil Simon was standing there. And so I was like, yes, he was a, a hero to me. And, you know, he was taller than I imagined, but he had the famous sort of horn rim glass, black horn rim glasses. And, uh, and he uh, could probably see how nervous I was. And, and he was very sweet and complimentary mm. and, and, uh, um, and, but he had that kind of, you know, he had this look in his eye, like, uh, like he knew something you didn't, he, he knew he was going to, uh, you know, he's got an idea for a play and he's going <laughs> to write about it and whatever might be happening. He was, he seemed to be always thinking how that would work in a play. But, uh, I originally, they wanted me to play the role of Milt in the part that oh. Stadlin played the great Lou Stadlin. Love him. Yes. And, um, I've done like nine shows with Lewis. Yeah, we know. My good luck charm. And uh, uh, so I said, great, I'll do anything to be in a new Neil Simon play. And then um, they wanted to do a reading of it. And they said, for the purposes of the reading, you play the uh, Sid Caesar part, the Milt, uh, not Milt. Um, uh, Max. Max, Max Prince. But we want some guy who's like 6'2 and 250 pounds. The Sid Caesar was so huge. I said, yeah, okay, fine. And we did this reading and then they came to me and they said, well, now we can't imagine anybody else doing this. And Neil said, I said, oh, gee, uh, really? And, and Neil said, what, what you lack in height, you make up for in anger. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so to go out of town with Neil Simon, you know, and while he's writing, yes. you know, and, yes. and, and uh, you know, he would, he, he, I ran it. He was one day in the, in sitting in the audience while we were teching the show and we were in, oh, North Carolina, Duke University. They tried plays out there. Manny Eisenberg tried plays out there. Anyway, he was writing on a legal, yellow legal pad, you know, um, and I, I, I was going by and I said, hey, what you writing? <laughs> What you writing, Neil Simon? And he said, uh, uh, "He said I'm writing a speech for you. Actually, he said um, we'll we'll put it in uh, in a few days after you have, you've had time to learn it." And I said, "I'll let's put it in tonight." I, I, I guess we were already starting previews. So, and he loved that I was uh, so open to trying things and and do it, learning mm -hmm. it quickly. And, mm. um, it, you know, it was just a great. Uh, it was a great experience, a great another great group of actors. And would you then tell us a little bit about Buzz in Love, Valor, Compassion? Oh, well, that's a long story. Um, that's a play that he wrote. Um, uh, I was not supposed to be in. He had an initial reading of it. He said he had written, you know, <laughs> he would always say, you know, I'm writing this for so-and-so, you know, um, and he had written that part for somebody else. And then I, as a favor, I read the British twins, James oh. and John, in the very first reading of it. <clears throat> then uh, he didn't like how the guy performed it. So 
uh, and then he had difficulty finding a director. And then I suggested Jerry Zachs. Uh, they worked on a reading of it. He had done some work on it and they did a reading of it that I, I went to, to and, and sit in the audience. I wasn't in it. And then uh, a half an hour, we were waiting and waiting for the reading to start. Half an hour in, Terrence and Jerry come up and they say, the guy who's supposed to play Buzz is stuck in traffic and we can't keep people waiting anymore. There were like 150 people. And they said, would you read it? And I said, well, I, you know, I read the other part last time. So I, I said, yeah, I mean, if it will help you. So I went down and I started reading it. It was essentially a cold reading. Yeah. Uh, and, um, and I'm killing. I'm killing with this part. <laughs> they had all rehearsed for three, four days. I'm killing. You know, it's a great, it's a great fucking part. That's all yeah. there is to it. So, you know, about a, a 20 minutes into it, you know, the guy shows up. <laughs> He's sitting in the audience. <laughs> I can see him out of the corner of my eye and I feel terrible, but I'm just trying to help two friends. Yeah. Um, I finish the finish the first act. And I say, okay, no, no, he, I'm sure he'll, he can take over now. And, and they were both like, oh, no, 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 <laughs> oh. no, it's going very well. And we're not going to, we don't want to upset the audience. <laughs> this guy leaves, you know, I feel terrible, but you know, it went very well. And then I, I thought for sure, Jerry would direct it. And, uh, and but then he still seemed to be on the fence. I said, would it, uh, uh, what would it influence you if I, I said, I'll, I'll play the part. I'll play the part. The laughter on the 23rd floor was going to close. And I said, what if I uh, took a, uh, over the part? And he, yeah, he said that would, I would, that would make me feel good. And then he still turned it down. <laughs> 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 and and I was much. committed. And then uh, that's when Terrence, you know, who very often, so many people have this story where he gave someone their first break. That's right. <clears throat> and he suggested Joe Mantello. You've worked with Joe Mantello so many times. What is it about him that makes you keep coming back to him? Because he's one of the best. Because I, 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 I always want to work with Joe whenever I can. The last time, uh, no, we did Love Valor. We did Mislansky um, Zelinsky. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we we did uh, The Odd Couple. November. He's just, again, like George Wolf. you know, you, it's just fun to be in the room yeah. and, uh, and to collaborate. And, is, that, is that a big thing for you to have someone in the room that you can have fun with, someone that you can... What else? What else? Right? What, what else have we done? What's the you point know? otherwise? You know, yeah, is, you want to have fun. Same thing with Matthew Broderick and the producers, that sort of fun and energy? That's too much fun. Too much fun. <laughs> That's dangerous fun. Had you oh. met him before you started well, working had, on the production? We had both provided voices in the, the Lion King, right. the original Lion King. <laughs> yes. The non-Billy Eichner one. Yes. Um, and uh, so we uh, we had met like at the premiere because we didn't record together. Um, and and then I had met Matthew when he was a kid in Broadway, in Brighton Beach Memoirs. Mm. I met him walking down 57th Street, and I stopped him and told him, just like a fan, you know, I just said, oh, I saw you in the play, and you were fantastic. And, huh. You know, and he was his usual, um, thing. you know, he barely yes. couldn't take the compliment, couldn't. And, um, 
And he said, I just remember he, what he said was, we were both wearing sort of Oxford blue shirts. And he said, look, look we're wearing the same shirt. <laughs> I said, yeah, well, I, I said, you're, you're my idol now. I'm dressing like you. <laughs> and he looked at me like, oh, this guy is probably a stalker. And he yeah, quickly left. Little did he know we yeah. um, joined at the hip. <clears throat> so, yeah, I mean, part of the, you know, the uh, producers was the that are that are budding friendship. The frogs. Um, what inspired you to to not only become to be in it, but also to write a new book for it? Right. Um, I had uh, uh, I think of the frogs as kind of a noble failure. I had um, I knew the piece. I remember picking it up in the drama bookshop many, many years before and reading it a lot. And I would jot things down, notes or jokes or thing ideas. And I thought it's because I, I the authors of Forum, you know, Sondheim, oh, yeah. and Bert Shevelov, I thought right. this was interesting and it was nothing like Forum. <laughs> And and then I had done a, uh, the Library of Congress. We had a there was a birthday uh, event for Steve and they did um, uh, songs uh, he wished he had written and songs he was glad he had written. So part of it was we did a, 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 the frogs. We did a, a, a condensed version of it. And then uh, um, uh, we there was a recording of it myself from Brian Stokes Mitchell and. Davis Gaines. And then I was listening to the recording and it was after 9-11. And I thought, I wonder if this piece could be done again. And, you know, what it's saying about, um, you know, how, how we need, uh, you need the uh, the arts, you know, to, to help guide us. We need a, uh, that kind right. of um, uh, poetry to, to, Healing and, yeah. to get through these difficult times. And, and with this 400-year-old play, work today um and and would uh, steve be open to adding more to the score than that just the exist having just the existing choral numbers so um uh so we as soon as i brought this to susan stroman as an idea she loved it uh and then we went to steve and nervously asked him if he would be interested in writing more songs and he agreed and then we began this journey. Um, what I never, uh, I never read re original reviews for the show were, were not good. No, <laughs> people no. didn't like it. And to say the least, you know, the, the combination of what Aristophanes did, which was, we were trying to honor, which is to, um, you know, this, uh, lowbrow humor mixed with this highfalutin debate and, and, you know, it was the, the frogs was like a um, it's like a, a version of uh, Saturday Night Live or uh, your show of shows. It was this commentary on what's going on and, and uh, directly addressing it. S satire, very, you know, their their idea of a hilarious joke with the, the God, uh, Di God Dionysus was like, a you know, was played like Jack Benny. Yeah. Or, or Frazier. That was hilarious to them. There were a lot of gay jokes about him, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, um, you know, it was, it, and then, and then it got, was the, the, the debate between Aeschylus and Euripides and Bert Shevelov had made it, uh, um, uh, Shaw and Shakespeare, which I loved. And, 
anyway, I wished I had just been um, the a writer, um, but you know, it sort of helped it to be done by being absolutely, you know, absolutely. People, people, some people accused it of being a vanity project, and I, I had no, you know, it wasn't like I was dying to play Dionysus. I just it just made sense, and I thought, oh, okay, but it made that was difficult to be in the middle of it and try to sure. uh, look at it objectively. People would boo me at the end, give me the oh my goodness. Uh, uh, um, you know, because it was obviously we, we, even though I was talking about the Peloponnesian war in the show, it was obvious what I was referencing. Um, so it was, it was very difficult and, and painful Mm. and, uh, exhausting. But by the end, I was just proud of the fact that we tried to do something that was political. Yes. Divided. Uh, and you know when when are we not divided in a very divided time in the country look it was a it was a learning experience it was a it was <laughs> it got a lavish production at it certainly did. Yeah. it was fabulous and, and there were some wonderful you know steve wrote some wonderful pieces of music uh, for it i always <laughs> love that number i love to travel it's oh just, yeah I remember saying to him, with Susan and I sitting across from him and saying, and he kept saying, well, what's it about? And I said, nothing. He loves to travel. <laughs> and, then, and then the servant hates to travel. And then, you know, it's a counterpoint. And then, you know, then they get to Heracles' house. Right. <laughs> um, so he was writing in a way that he hadn't in many years. Mm-hmm. But and then he was. Um, and it was difficult, but then he wrote one of the most uh, adorable, joyous <laughs> little tunes it's ever. So yeah. jaunty, and it's 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 really delightful. Yeah. So, Nathan, the last question we're going to ask you, we ask all of our guests, which is, you know, now that you've had this amazing career, if you could go back and talk to the young guy that's just starting the career, what advice would you pass on to them? What do you know now that you wished you had known then? You know, I wish everyone has to find their own path, and um, uh, I. Take the work seriously, not yourself. You know, be a professional. You know, come in with ideas and enthusiasm, and be kind. Work hard. Give two hundred percent. All of that. You know, it's such a. It's just such an insecure, difficult business. You know, I, I would say if there's anything else you would be happy doing, maybe consider that because <laughs> it's so hard. But if you really want to do it, you're going to do it no matter what. So, exactly. I, you know, I always cite the, you know, the old Jack Lemon story when he talked to his, uh, he told his father he was going to, bec- he wanted to become an actor. His father was a baker and uh, he was very nervous about telling him this. Um, uh, the notion of becoming an actor was sort of still looked down on at that time period. Uh, <laughs> I think it's still looked down on. In many ways, and he uh, and his father just looked at him for a long time, and he said, uh, "Do you love it?" And he said, "Oh yes, Dad, with all my heart." And then he said, "Well then, well then, you should do it." He said, "He said the day I don't find romance in a loaf of bread, I'll walk away." That's beautiful. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> That's beautiful. That is so it's, beautiful. It's truth there. Nathan, thank you so, so much for spending so much time with us today. I cannot yeah. tell you how much we appreciate it. And and thank you so much for all the amazing, amazing work you've given us throughout your entire career. Well, thank you. Thank you very pleasure. much. A pleasure. All right, folks. Till next time. Bye-bye.
thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right? Back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was Betty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.